0: You guys turn to Ephesians 2, and specifically verses 1 through 10 today, and uh, as I jump into this, I want to talk to you guys for a second about perspective. Perspective is one of the fundamental tools in art, specifically painting and drawing, uh, but even photography, videography, they all use perspective, and the artist uses sizing and spacing to communicate in the picture what's important by bringing something to the front and putting something else in the back. And in doing that, they're able to create this realistic looking picture, again, that communicates details of importance. The artist can highlight whatever they want to highlight in that picture. They can make you look at and attract your attention to wherever they want to by using perspective. And I think as we jump into today and the next couple weeks, we're going to be highlighting the love of God. That's the name of our series for the next few weeks. And the goal is to magnify and to speak on and to meditate on the love of God. Now, the love of God is infinite. It's endless. It's unsearchable. And it's very present for us to know in Jesus and in his word and the Holy Spirit We're able to access the love of God. Yet, we constantly need to be reminded of it, don't we? We constantly need to, to understand more of God's love. And I think it's because each of us is an artist of our own version of reality. And here's what I mean by that. We go through life and we experience things. And when we experience things, we interpret what happens through a particular lens, through a particular filter and we communicate to our own heart why things happened the way they happened. And then once we communicate that through our filter to our own heart, then we communicate that to other people. We're painting a picture by the way that we relate our experiences to other people by the way that we respond to those experiences, by the facial expressions we use when we talk about things, by the words that we choose, the attitude that we live in, we're painting a picture. And if our perspective in that picture is skewed, then the love of God and God himself are actually misrepresented in our lives. And so... My goal for today is to give us a new perspective, uh, a refreshed perspective in our paintings. We're painting a picture of the love of God for everyone to see. Christians of all people should be people who are constantly, consistently, and reverently painting a picture with your life of the love of God, about God. In everything you say, in everything you do, we're painting that picture. Um, But the problem is we default to making ourselves in the foreground of the picture. We interpret life experiences based on the way it made us feel or the way that it hurt us. And so when we interpret reality and we paint the picture with that perspective, again, we're, we're minimizing the love of God. We're actually, in our painting, we're pushing him back in the background while we're in the foreground. Many of you guys have used the iPhone portrait mode. When you use the portrait mode, it tells you you need to move closer to the object. And as you move closer to that object, it blurs everything else out. So the goal for for today is that I want us to move closer to God and who he really is and understand what he says about himself and his love. So that way, when we move towards that and we put that in the foreground, then our our misinterpretations of the way things really are um, are corrected and and the perspective is that we're painting the picture around God not around us so that's my goal for today and specifically I want to just look at what it is that makes God's love extraordinary and there's many many things that we don't even know but just going to touch on a few from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 and it's it goes like this for by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Would you guys pray with me as we jump into it? Heavenly Father, we come before you so thankful this morning again, that we have access to your throne. Lord, we're so thankful for the blood of Jesus, for the death and resurrection of our Savior who has raised us to life. And Lord, I'm praying the, the words of Ephesians 1 that our hearts would be enlightened to know something more of the love of God, that we would know the fullness of the mystery of the gospel as it's been revealed in Christ. Lord, I pray that, that you would bring correction to our perspective on why things happen, the way things happen. Lord, bring correction and bring your refreshing spirit to bear upon our hearts so that we might understand things the way they really are, that we might see ourselves the way that we really are, and that we might see you, God, the way you really are, that your love might be on display for all to see. And now, Lord, I lift up Dan and Jody and their family. Lord, would you give them A profoundly restful time while they're away. Lord, would you restore them, spiritually build them up and strengthen them and encourage them as they gather with family, as they enjoy your creation, Lord? Would you fill them up so they can return and uh, pour out everything you've given them on us here at church, Lord? Thank you for the ways that you bless us through them, and we ask for this profound filling and empowering on their lives, Lord. And we also lift up the young people, really in our whole city, Lord, but um, I'm thinking of the young people in this neighborhood who are at home, they don't have a lot to do, and oftentimes they don't have a good family situation. And Lord, there are many situations where children are hurting and they're experiencing evil in the home, and they're experiencing all sorts of just dark, dark things. And Lord, my heart goes out to them, and, and I ask that you would... Help us as a church to be able to embrace those kids, to be able to love them well, to be able to care for them. And Lord, ultimately, we know that, as we're going to see here, Jesus is the ultimate answer. He's the ultimate solution for all these problems. And so we ask that you would open up their hearts to the gospel, that they would know their Heavenly Father, that you would restore them and heal them and bring them to a place of honor in your kingdom, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, if we're going to correct our perspective on these things, we have to understand who we are. And that's what Paul does here in chapter 2, the first couple of verses. We have to see ourselves the way that God sees us. I, I think too often we think too highly of ourselves. And uh, we, we have this idea that we're really good people. And you know, I'm speaking to a group of people in this room that are actually, like you guys are upstanding people. But let's see what Paul says about who we really are. Even though we might do some good things. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And I want to make a statement that might sound stark. But... I believe that is true. God shouldn't love you. Based on all human reasoning, God shouldn't love you. And the first reason is because you've consistently failed to do the very thing that you were created to do. See, if you jump, jump back to Genesis chapter one, just briefly, we see that God created people to live. He created people in his image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, male and female. and Genesis 2, 7, he formed the man out of the dust of the ground and he breathed life into him so that he became a living creature. We were made to live. But what happened in the garden, Adam and Eve chose If you remember the names of the trees that they were, they were one. They were not allowed, and one they were allowed to eat of. They chose the knowledge of evil as opposed to the tree of life. They chose evil over life. See, when when we've been made in the image of God to live, the very purpose of our existence is to be alive, representing who God is. We're doing what he, what he does, we're doing what he says, we're representing him for all to see in the world. And, and originally we were supposed to just do that and multiply, but Adam and Eve chose the knowledge of evil over life. And so the very second that they, that they misrepresented God by crossing his boundary, they actually ceased to do the very thing that they were made to do, which was to live. They gave up life and they cut off their life source. And Paul says that you were dead. In your trespasses and sins, you were dead. You were doing the very thing that you were not created to do. You were made to live. But it wasn't just a one-time thing. We all make mistakes, right? But this wasn't a one-time thing. This was a consistent pattern, a lifestyle. He says, the sins and trespasses in which you once walked. You were going on a progressive path over a period of time and establishing a pattern, a lifestyle of being dead in your trespasses and sins. You were trespassing beyond what God said not to do and you were falling short of what God expected and called you to do. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 18, that in the the darkness and the futility of that way of life, you've alienated yourself from the life of God. You've cut yourself off from him. But notice that as he continues, he says you were dead, but he uses these action words that don't really seem to make sense when you think about being dead. He says you walked, you were following, and you lived. So it clues us in that this condition of being dead is profoundly spiritual. There's You can still be, you have a beating heart and your, your body can be alive, but this death is profoundly spiritual. And so, we can really see that really everything that's wrong with the world is a spiritual thing because people are spiritually dead, walking progressively in a path of misrepresenting God, not not being his pure image on earth, but walking away from that. And so as he uses these action words, he continues, he says, following the course of this world. I want to point out that We weren't just failing consistently. When you fail to do something, you just don't do it. We were actually purposely doing the opposite of what we were created to do. So while we were failing, we were purposely failing, and we were purposely doing the opposite of what God made us to do. We're following the course of this world. It brings to mind this game that my kids like to play. They like to stand on a bridge over a stream, and they get twigs or leaves, and they toss them over the bridge and run to the other side to see whose twig gets to the other side first. That's the idea that comes to mind with this phrase, following the course of this world. makes me picture us just drifting along aimlessly with the winds of culture, going where they direct us, and not really having any say in the matter. We're just following the course. That is true, but it's also more active than that. The language here is actually saying, not that we're just dead, drifting along like a dead log, but you are walking according to the world. You're walking according to a set of beliefs that is distinct from what God has called us to do. You're making a purposeful decision, again, to walk down a path in the opposite direction of the path that God has called you to. And this just seems kind of silly, but it's an example of the system that the world works by. The other day, I was, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say this, but I'm also not. I was doing a yoga thing with uh, a Nike training app. So I've never really done yoga before, but I was stretching, and the, the instructor starts off by saying, Okay, I want you to take a deep breath and bring your hands to the center of your energy. And then I want you to bow to yourself and thank yourself for being here. And then I want you to find your truth and just stay there. And I'm like, I'm already skeptical of doing it in the first place. And then she says that and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Like this, it seems harmless when you're in a stretching session. It seems harmless. And I'm not trying to offend anybody if you're into yoga. Uh, There's a lot of benefit to it. But the very fact that this is the thought process that the world lives by, that's the problem. And when you have a worldview that says we need to have our own version of truth, what do you end up with but 8 billion versions of truth and none of them are the same? When you walk according to what the world says, you're not walking according to what God has made you to do. And in fact, you're doing the opposite. But it's more than that. He says you're following the world, but you're also following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's getting at the fact that there's actually this dark spiritual perverted authority that's influencing. It's behind what the world is doing. It's behind what culture says, and it's powerfully influential. So when you're drifting along in that world system, finding your own truth, doing what you want to do, do what's right for you, you were born that way, it's fine. Whatever makes you feel right. You're actually giving in to the influence of the devil. He's the one working behind it, enticing us with this thing, trying to draw us away from who we were made to be. But what does Satan use to have that type of authority over us? It's not like he's coming out of left field and creating some manifesto of all the rules we need to follow. He's using our own desires He's using the things that our flesh, that our body and that our mind want. The things that God has forbidden, the things that God has told us to limit or to control in balance. He's holding those things out and saying, pursue these things, pursue this, pursue that. It feels good, it feels right. You know you want to do it, just do it. It's not going to hurt. He's just holding before us our own desires. And when he does that, we chase after it. The text says that we were we were living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out those desires. There was no hesitation. There was no disobedience to ourself. We were just carrying it out like a good soldier. We got the mission, and we carried it out. We executed it. We had that desire. We had that, um, that logical reasoning that told us this was right for this reason, and so we did it. And every time we made those choices, we were further tightening the bonds that Satan has on us. We're just tightening the bonds, adding more chains to ourselves, enslaving ourselves to the prince of all of the dark spiritual power that's influencing the world. There is more than just one spiritual being influencing the world, and there's a prince over them. And Paul says... When you're dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, you're following that prince. You're doing the opposite of what you were made to do. Glory to Jesus. We have to remember, though, that God isn't some mechanical engineer that's designed us according to some protocol and some parameters, and we're just expected to live by code. But God's actually our heavenly father who designed us for relationship, for love. We're talking about the love of God, right? He's our father who created us for love. And so when we do that, when we run in the opposite direction, pursuing our desires, pursuing what the world says we should do, pursuing what Satan is influencing the world to do, running away from God, we're not just failing to do a code that we were designed to do. We're hurting the very heart of God. We're offending his very fatherly heart, his loving heart. We're cutting him deep when we do that. We're rebelling against our father. And so what happens when we live that way? He says, we're by nature children of wrath. You're like, well, I thought we were talking about the love of God. Now we're talking about wrath. The fact that God is loving requires that he cannot let evil go unpunished. If he did that, he would not be loving. He has to hold evil and wickedness accountable. And when you purposefully, consistently fail to do what he's made you to do, and you rebel against his heart, you've actually taken yourself out of the inheritance as his child, and you've put yourself into the inheritance of a child of wrath who's destined to be punished for the choices that you've made. But God... (laughs) Ephesians 2, four, But God intervened. We failed time and time again, consistently, willingly, purposefully, aggressively. But God intervened because he loves us. Amen. And God actually goes to extraordinary lengths to demonstrate his love for you. Keep the paintbrushes out. We, we, we just painted the picture of who we really are. We painted the picture of our past maybe the present for some of us, we got to paint the picture of who God really is. How many of you guys have been crushed by the pain of being sinned against? Have you guys felt that before? I have multiple times. Crushed to the heart by being sinned against. And how many of you guys, in that moment, decided to take everything of value to you and give it to the person that hurts you so that you might draw near to them and demonstrate that you care about them? How many of you responded that way? That's what God did. Anything that is made by humans is going to break at some point. It's just a fact of life. But anything that's made by humans can also be repaired since we made it in the first place. But whether or not we decide to repair something that is broken, ultimately, in our way of thinking, comes down to whether it costs more than the value of the item. And for some reason, we are drawn to this idea to just think about how many TV shows there are about restoring old cars, restoring old houses, restoring old antique things that were passed down in your family. There's show after show of people investing tons of money into restoring broken things. But we think usually, maybe not necessarily in, in those TV shows, but in our life, If something breaks, we usually find it foolish to restore it when the cost to restore it exceeds the cost to replace it. But here's the thing. We are broken, all of us. He says, like the rest of mankind, all people are in this boat. There's not a person on earth that hasn't been broken to the point of death. But the value that God has assigned to you even before you were born in creating mankind and in giving us his image, creating us in his image, the value that he's assigned to us and then created us out of love is far greater than the cost of restoration from any depth of brokenness. Your value as created by God far exceeds the cost to restore your brokenness from any depth. Amen. And God's riches of mercy are way more extravagant than our wealth of wrongdoings. Look again at uh, verse 4. He says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. His love is extraordinary First of all, as we mentioned, because of who he loves. But second of all, his love is extraordinary because of when he extends that love to us. The verse says, because of the great love with which he loved us. It's kind of a shame that the English language is, unfortunately, kind of uh, lame, in my opinion. (laughs) Like, you speak Spanish, you know, like, things in Spanish are just so much more robust than English. Things in French and Italian and Greek, which this was written in, are just so much more robust and expressive than English. And the English word just says great. Like, when I hear the word great, what do you say when you walk in and something spilled on the floor? You're like, oh, great. Like, that's the word great in my mind. (laughs) But the word great here is extravagant, it's excessive, it's out of the ordinary, it's unexpected, it's beyond anything that we could ever imagine. That's the word that he uses here, that we translate as great. It's extravagant because of when he extends it to us. When we were dead in our trespasses, verse 5. And Jesus said in Luke six thirty-two that if you love your friends and the people who treat you well, that's not really anything to be proud of. He says even a wicked person does that. That's expected. But when you love your enemy, when they hate you, that's what God does. That is the type of love that represents who God is. And that's, in fact, what we see here. He's extending his love when we were dead in our rebellion. But it's not just extravagant and extraordinary because of who he loves and when he loves us. This is the climax. It's because of what he extends to us, the very demonstration of God's love. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. You guys already knew that, but it's Jesus. Jesus. The demonstration, the the complete, perfect, full, undebatable, undisputed champion of the world. The demonstration that proves God's love is Jesus. Yes, yes. Just notice how many times here in this section Paul mentions Jesus. Verse 5, with Christ. Verse 6, with him, verse 6, with him, verse 6, in Christ, verse 7, in Christ, verse 10, in Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. The very love of God is demonstrated by Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see in a couple of weeks in 1 John 4, he says, In this the love of God was made obvious among us, that God sent his only son so that we might live through him. You know, we, we require proof for everything these days. We need proof, especially when it comes to love. I don't want you to just tell me you love me. I want you to show me that you love me, right? That's how we feel about each other. But that's what God has given us in Jesus. He's not just telling us that he loves us, but he's, in fact, going to the greatest lengths to prove it. Just think about all that Jesus did during his life to demonstrate the love of God. Just his very birth, coming in the form of a man, miraculously humbling himself to come out of heaven into this world. Like that in and of itself is an act of love. But then he humbled himself, not just as a man, but as a servant. And he entered into a ministry of serving other people in kindness and compassion. Serving time after time when he was exhausted and weak and he still pouring out his ministry on everybody else, serving everybody else, washing the disciples' feet. But he didn't stop there. He upheld righteousness. He was the one who lived in the way that we were expected to live when we were created, right? He upheld the moral standard of righteousness in perfection. He fulfilled all that the law required. He fulfilled everything that we failed to do. He completed everything that we abandoned. And then he humbled himself even further to give his life for you. And we know this. This is like basic Christianity 101, but we can't just let it gloss over us. We have to just, again, be amazed by this. He humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on a cross as a criminal, with your guilt on his shoulders, all those trespasses and sins that you were dead and enslaved in, all of the wicked things, and we could sit here and give a laundry list of all the terrible things, even just the, however many of us there are in this room. We could probably come up with a long list of our sins. And he took those to the cross, and they were nailed to the cross with him and crucified with him. That, is an incredible demonstration that God loves us, that he would send Jesus to do that, that Jesus would willingly go through that for you. But it doesn't just stop there because he laid down his life and then did what? He took it up again. God's love, as we see in this text, is tied to the resurrection of Christ. I think that's one of the unique things about this text compared to the other ones that we're going to go through is that it places everything, all the love of God, our entire condition, and it, and it pins it on the resurrection of Jesus. What did, what did God do when he intervened? The text says he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. It's depending on the resurrection. If Jesus were to just stay dead, it wouldn't help us. The fact is that resurrection of the dead has to take place in order for us to be saved from that condition of being dead. And that's what we have in Jesus. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. But there's more. He just keeps going. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks about the immeasurable greatness of God's power in raising up Jesus from the dead and the immeasurable greatness of God's power that then exalted Jesus to the heavenly places above everything. But then in chapter 2, he transitions from that to then saying that God takes his dead, rebellious enemies and actually raises them up with Christ. He seats us with him in the heavenly places. So the whole point of the gospel, the whole point of all this, isn't just to make you a better person from your conversion until your funeral. Do you guys believe that? It's not just to make you better and it's not just to make the world a better place for our kids. That's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is that God restores the very people that he loves. He created us out of love, for love, and then he's restoring us to a place where we might rule under him and with him in a way where we're constantly adoring him and worshiping him and representing him forever. That's the point of the gospel is that he would restore what's been lost because remember, remember, the value that he places on you as his child is far greater than the depth of brokenness that you were in. I think this phrase, being seated with, is a really powerful phrase. And in fact, being seated with someone, in our own experience, is very powerful. It's a powerful demonstration not just of solidarity or kindness, but sometimes being seated with somebody is actually a radical demonstration that you're moving towards them, that you're welcoming them and accepting them and even loving them just by being seated with them. What do you guys do? Remember when you went into school for the first time, maybe you transferred schools or you went to high school for the first time, you walked in the lunchroom and what did you do right away? You look for someone to sit with, right? When you go to church for the first time, what do you do? You look where you're gonna sit. We even save seats for each other, right? People get crazy about saving seats because they wanna be seated with a particular person. The book of James talks about, it's a, a, it's a warning against people in the church who were, they were wel- welcoming in the wealthy people and they were giving them the seats of honor up at the front of the table. And the people who were dressed poorly, who didn't have a lot of money, they were seating them in the back. And and James says, this is insulting your maker. You're seating some people in the front and some people in the back. Now, Speaking of sitting in the back, how many of you ride the bus ever? It wasn't that long ago that People of color didn't have a choice where they were gonna sit on the bus, right? People of color were forced to sit in the back and the, the Montgomery bus boycott became a catalyst for the whole civil rights movement all over what? One person being seated where another person didn't think they should be seated because white people couldn't bear to sit next to a black person. Being seated with someone is a powerful demonstration that you are welcome and that you're accepted. Long before the resurrection of Jesus, before he got to that point of coming back to life in that tomb, he had already demonstrated God's love time and time again He was eating with the sinners. He was meeting with scoundrels. He was touching the untouchable. He was healing the unhealable, loving the unlovable. He had a 33-year life as a man on this planet, which was a full continuum of demonstrating God's perfect love all before he died and was resurrected. And when he was resurrected, the work was then Finished, that we might be raised to life with him, that we might be seated with him, seated with him above all things in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. He has done insane amounts of demonstrating that we are welcome in his kingdom because of what Christ did. But let's talk about why. This is the next reason why his love is extraordinary. Not just who he loves, not just when he loved us, not just what he did. And even as I say that, I'm like, the last five or 10 minutes of what I said is like lifetimes of study of theology goes into this stuff. And we, like, we still can't even capture the magnitude of what we just talked about in five minutes. But the why just continues to set apart God's love as even more extravagant. Look at verse 7. God made us alive, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, which is the fullness of time, when, when this world as we know it ends, when the system and set of values that we're operating here on earth against God, when that stuff has ended, when Jesus has finally brought all of his people with him forever to be united to him, that's the coming ages. He wants to demonstrate for that entire eternal period of time his immeasurable riches of grace. Think about that. He sent Jesus from heaven to earth so that he would have for eternity a living, never-ending, constant testimony of his grace. See, all the heavenly beings, all the all the angels, the elders around the throne, all the saints from history who are now gathered with with Christ in heaven, waiting for us, the cloud of witnesses, as Hebrew says. Every single one of them knows about our rebellion. They all know that we were dead in our trespasses. Bringing us into the throne room of God, into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place, doesn't make sense to them. They know much more about God than we do, and they're sitting there like, this doesn't make sense. Peter says that the angels are longing to... To figure this out. They're longing to look into it. It's marvelous. It doesn't make sense. Our very presence before God, when we get there, just by us being there, is testifying to the immeasurable riches of his grace and love. Every second that we will gaze upon him and not be destroyed is another demonstration of his love and his grace and his mercy But I think the phrase also shows us, it's like just by our very being there, we're testifying, right? That in and of itself is showing his grace. But I think it's also saying that he's going to continue showing his immeasurable riches in kindness to us by eternally surprising us with more demonstrations of his grace and of his love. But we don't even know what that could look like. We can't even imagine it. Paul says in Ephesians 3:20 God is able to do far more than we can ask or think or even imagine now and in eternity. Just think about this concept that our heavenly Father saved us so that for eternity he could demonstrate his kindness to us. It's mind-blowing and he doesn't give us any other detail other than the fact that we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Like, I don't even know what that means, but it's an eternal demonstration of his kindness to us in Christ. He saved us so that he might, starting from that moment of salvation, still on this earth, shower us again and again with his grace. How many of you guys have experienced that, in this life even, before we even get to heaven, he's showering us with grace. He's giving us gifts. He's loving us. He's demonstrating it again and again. Even just yesterday, I was preparing this, and God provided financially for my family through his crazy set of circumstances in a way that was mind-blowing, that I was totally not expecting. And I'm sitting here writing about like God showering us with gifts. And in that moment... He hits me with another gift. Like, here you go. This is just just to show you how much I love you and actually am caring about you and providing for you and tending to your family. And it just, like, it brings you to your knees when that happens. Just think about when we're in his presence for eternity, and he's again and again demonstrating that. He has immeasurable riches of grace. He's rich in mercy. That's good. Mm Mm-hmm. So how do we respond to that? Verses 8 to 10. Think back to that, that moment when you were crushed by being sinned against. Think back to that moment. Don't let it stir up bitterness, but think about how you felt in those moments. Now imagine if you did respond by pouring out everything that was of value to you and investing everything you had to restore your relationship with that person regardless of what they did. Think about that. Imagine if you would have responded that way. How do you think that person would feel after you demonstrate that kind of love and grace and mercy? How do you think they would feel when you walk into the room the first time after they hurt you and you haven't resolved anything yet and you see each other face to face for the first time, think about the emotion that stirred up in that moment and then think about drawing near to that person and embracing them and saying, I love you, I forgive you, here's how I'm going to prove it to you. How do you think that person would feel in that moment? That's where we are. Every every time that person would see you, it would be reminded again and again. That's why we rehearse the gospel in church. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. That's why we partake in the Lord's Supper. That's why we do this together, to rehearse again and again the fact that our God has drawn near to us in incredible mercy because of his love for us. The only thing that we can do to respond is to have faith to cast ourselves on the mercy of Christ. He says, none of this stuff is grasped by anything you can do. And he's already made that clear, that we're dead, we're rebellious, we're evil, we're wicked, we're deserving of wrath. All of this can only be accessed by faith. You have been saved by faith, by grace, through faith. It's the gift of God. There might be some people watching who have never experienced that reconciliation for the first time. And all you can do is to cast yourself before Christ and depend on his mercy and grace for salvation. He's the only one that can pull you out of that condition The resurrection of your dead soul has to take place. And Jesus is the only one who did what it takes to raise you back to life. And so all you can do is be united to him by faith. And as you have that faith in him, he's uniting you to himself by his spirit, the down payment, the guarantee for our salvation. That's the only thing you can do. But, What about those of us who have already, we've already received that gift? We've already grasped onto Christ in faith, and I'm I'm assuming we're all in this room, we're all there. We've already responded in faith. Now what? You're a painter. Get your paintbrushes out, because your life is a canvas of God's grace. Everything you do, everything you say, you're painting a picture for everybody to see. And so we've got to have the right perspective in mind. We've got to understand all this. And we, we get it. We've heard it many times. But we forget it, don't we? We forget the depth and just the magnitude of these truths. And so we've got to continue to have the correct perspective from God's word. So that way, when when trials and temptations come, how are we responding? Are we painting the picture with us in the center or are we painting the picture with God in the center? Now, he says that by grace we've been saved through faith, not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast because we are his workmanship created in Christ for what? Good works. Good works. We are created in Christ. We were created in the beginning as humans to do good works, right? But we messed that up. Now we're being recreated in Christ as we're brought to life again to do good works. What does that mean? Well, he's going to go on in all of Ephesians to talk more about that. He's going to give the practicals of what that looks like, how to walk it out. But I, would, I just want to put it out there that, that good works... The way I understand this passage is to live a life where we're demonstrating the same type of love that God demonstrated. The way that he moved towards rebellious people, his enemies, when they were hating him. And the way that our Heavenly Father poured out the most valuable thing, his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, eternally God and and completely man, miraculously, that he might do all those things that he did and and die and come back to life, that we might be raised up. We're supposed to live that same type of way, right? We're supposed to be not just, good works aren't just going to church. Church is good, I'm not minimizing it, but that's not the extent of good works. Passing out a piece of paper to a person that says, here's how you can know Jesus, Not a bad thing at all. Also, not the extent of good works. Living a life of good works that, it says, God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Again, it's that idea of progressively, consistently walking. This is your way of life, not just a one-off, but you're walking in these good works. Means that you are moving towards people who have wronged you You're moving towards people who everybody else says is unlovable. Here's the reasons why you shouldn't talk to that person. Here's everything they've done wrong. Here's why they're a terrible person. Racist, abuser, you name it. All the things that culture is tossing around and accusing people of right now, the worst of the worst, we're called to step towards them, right? And we're called to give of ourselves for those people that they might know the love of God the way that we've experienced it just think about that that's weighty that is, that is weighty and it's a lot but it's not a burden Jesus says my burden is not heavy my burden is light when you're united to Jesus you're walking side by side with your God and Savior and he's, he's teaching us, right? That's part of being refreshed by our God, by his spirit. He's teaching us. He's correcting us. He's guiding us. He's leading us to those moments where we're faced by an enemy. And then he's empowering us to serve and to love in those moments. And that's what we're called to do. That ministry of reconciliation that Dan talked about several weeks ago from Second Corinthians. We are ambassadors that are bringing the reconciliation to those enemies. And guys, the fact is that's the primary way that God works salvation, right? Is by bringing the message of the gospel through people's words and by the way they live their lives, right? It says the, the gospel has the power to bring people to that saving knowledge, right? But how can people know the gospel if they haven't heard it? How are they going to hear it unless somebody speaks it to them? It's all about living a life that is walking in the good works that God has prepared beforehand where we're demonstrating the radical, extravagant, self-sacrificial love towards people that are opposed to God and they're opposed to us. Uh, You guys can go ahead and come on up. We're going to close. Um, I just would like to pray for just the two general groups of people that I mentioned. The people who haven't yet been raised to life and also the people who have been raised to life that maybe you are doing a good job of living a life of, of good works. Maybe you're failing in that. Um, In either case, I want to pray for those two groups of people that we might have our perspective set aright right now. That even today as we walk out of here, as we go about our business, that every choice we make, every word that we speak, every action that we do would be painting a picture of the love of God that is extraordinary and extravagant. Would you guys pray that with me? Lord Jesus, we're so thankful again. We can, we can only just say that we're so thankful. We're so undeserving. We're so humbled by what you've given to us. It is humbling to receive a large gift that you don't feel like you deserve. And so, Lord, I I pray that anybody who is listening who hasn't yet been raised to life and rescued out of that deadness, Lord, would you bring that to pass? Spirit of God, would you waken their heart up? Would you enlighten them to understand the fullness of this mystery that perfect God would save sinful man, that you would bring us into your presence so that we might testify forever to your grace? Lord, I pray that those who don't know that would know it, that they would grasp you in faith, Jesus. And, and Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are already in Christ. They've known this truth. They've held on to you in faith. Lord, I pray that you would stir up within us a desire, as, as the book of Titus says, that we would be zealous for good works, Not that we would do a thing here or a thing there, but that we would thrive in living a life that is demonstrating that love. Lord, that we would even be intentional about it, that we would think about the craziest way that we could demonstrate your love and that that we would then do it. Lord, help us to be radical in this. Help us to be sacrificial in this. The type of love that you've loved us with is not comfortable and easy, but sacrificial and radical. And so, Lord, I pray that you would empower us to do that, that you would raise us up to live that life of good works that you've prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And, Lord, we're just so thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.